Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Should we get our circle sorted again? If we move down a little bit, these guys here, if we slightly move down this way, and we've got some gaps over here. Again, you guys, come a little bit this way. We've got some people squashed on this end. And we can make a nice halaqa, inshallah. Making sure everyone's in it. As soon as our halaqa is ready, we'll start, inshallah. So simply, we want everyone to make a little bit of movement. I know you're all tired. But this ummah was never a stagnant ummah. It was never one that just stayed still. I'll tell you a very interesting point on that. You know, at times like this, where people are speaking about, you know, what's going to happen? When's the revival going to take place? When are things going to change? Who's going to become the leader? And a very normal response that people are giving is that, do you know what? Nothing's going to happen now. We have to wait for Imam Mahdi to come up. Haven't you heard this response? Yeah? That things are, things are not going to change now. Things are not going to get better. Only Imam Mahdi can do it. Because of such statements, there have been... And this is not the mainstream opinion, by the way, so don't get me wrong on this. The mainstream opinion of all of the scholars is that towards the end of times, a person will come by the name of Muhammad, the son of Abdullah. His title will be the Mahdi. He will not claim to be the Mahdi. And in some hadith, he even says that maybe when he's young, he might not even be the most pious person. Allah will revive him and make his islah overnight. So overnight, something will happen where he'll become a pious person. And then he'll be in Makkah between the Hajr al-Aswad and the Maqam Ibrahim. And then people will say that he is a Mahdi. And there'll be an army... He'll flee from somewhere. He'll flee from somewhere and he'll take refuge in Makkatul Mukarrama and there'll be an army. There'll be an army chasing him, trying to kill him, and then the earth will open up and eat the army up. The army will be taken in and will be destroyed. And from then onwards, Imam Mahdi will be known as Imam Mahdi. He'll be a normal person. He won't perform miracles. He'll be a normal human being. But he'll have the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a belief of Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'ah. And we know that it'll be a time when Isa salam will be there and the Jal will also be there. So it's going to be right towards the end of times. Not today. Right? We don't know when it's going to be, but it's not today, of course. It's going to be right towards the end because we know when he'll be leading Salah, Isa salam will come. And when Isa salam comes, we know the Jal will be here. As well, So it'll be towards the most major signs. This is the opinion of the majority of the scholars, mainstream scholars throughout the ages. There have been very few individual scholars throughout the ages because there's no mention in the Quran or in the uh, Bukhari or Muslim. Mahdi has been mentioned in Abu Dawood, in Ibn Majah, Mustadak Ibn Hakim and other major books of hadith as well. But because it's not been mentioned in the, uh, directly, indirectly in Bukhari it's mentioned, indirectly. But directly with name it's not been mentioned. This has led to some scholars saying no, this is, uh, there is no concept of the Mahdi in Islam or they say that it's referring to Isa salam or something else like this. Amongst these scholars there was one very recent scholar a uh, very famous scholar, he has passed away now, was Sheikh Yusuf al-Qardawi. When somebody asked Sheikh Yusuf al-Qardawi, why is it now towards the end of your life, you are saying that, you know, 
it's best we don't promote the idea of the Mahdi. And by the way, this is not the mainstream opinion. I'm trying to drive a point home. That's why I'm mentioning this. He says, people have used the idea of the Mahdi to kill off any type of political activism. People have become stagnant and they've stopped engaging politically to reform households, to reform societies, to reform Muslims globally. And they've said, you know what? Only Mahdi can do this. We can't do it. And it's made people stuck. This idea has made people stagnant. This is why I'm pushing for this idea. So that people understand that no matter where you are, what time you're living in, you have a duty to make reform. Whether you reform yourself, your family, your society, or the world globally, your task is to make reformation, to make changes, to work towards development and political activism. And on this note, I'm going to say next week, Saturday 13th of January. There is now what they're calling a global march going to take place in London. You heard about the national march, which happened some time ago, and everybody took part. There's been marches happening every week. But these are some highlighted marches which are very significant, and we want as many people to attend as possible. So next week's march is very, very, very important. A lot of you will have heard the clip of Brother Ismail Patel from Friends of Al-Aqsa, um, who heads the, and organizes these marches, not just today, for years and years. This is a lifelong sacrifice of such individuals who have been working tirelessly. So when it comes to these issues, we must listen to them because they are the pioneers in these fields. They know what to do. They know when to do it. They know how to do it. They are the experts in this. We should not make up our own ideas. We follow the ones who have been doing it for years and years. So when it comes to this, they're saying that next week's march is very significant. Uh, so this is something. So first of all, I make a plea to everyone here who has not yet attended a march in London at all. First, my pleas to those people. If you haven't had a chance to go to London and attend one of these protests and one of these marches, first of all, you're on my list that you must make an intention for next Saturday. There will be coaches going from Birmingham. There's one from Masjid Aisha for brothers only. There's a Yemeni center in Brest Bromwich. That's for brothers and sisters. And many people have reached out over the last few days requesting to organize coaches. So I'm in touch with them, trying to help them as well. Trying to do something from Kings Heath area and other areas as well. If there's anything, listen out. You will hear, inshallah, in the next few days, hopefully, if there's anything organized. So, first of all, those who haven't been at all, make an intention now. At least try and attend. And secondly, those of you who have been, don't let your last one be your last one. Okay, this is, this is over, as we can see. More than 90 days have gone by, and the killing has only intensified. This morning, you know, again, innocent babies, innocent children. The airstrikes are continuous, and not only are they happening now in Gaza. Last night and early this morning, there was a massacre happening in Janine, and in, in, in Nablus, and in Tulkaram, and in other Palestinian areas, which is not even in Gaza. Six individuals were made shaheed, and the people describe it as nothing short of a massacre. Israeli helicopter goes over, airstrike takes place, and they say all we can see in the area, we cannot recognize a single body of those who have died. Not a single body. Four brothers passed away. And all you could see is body parts, arms and heads and legs and feet. It's just a total massacre. That's what you call it. Nothing less. It's a genocide. It's an ethnic cleansing, which is continuous. So our efforts cannot stop. Our efforts cannot stop. They must be continuous. So this March next week, inshallah, 
put it at the top of your diaries, think about it, speak with your families, do something about it, inshallah, so we can do the least. I call it the least. This is the least we can do, not the most. This is the least we can do. We're only just getting started. We are only just getting started in our work towards working towards the liberation of Palestine, Baytul Maqdis, Masjid Al-Aqsa. We're just getting started. So let's, let's not the, let the momentum stop. This is the beginning, inshallah. And so first of all, those who haven't at all, make an intention. And those who have, also get other people ready and make an intention. And if you, 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 many people, alhamdulillah, have been going down in cars as well. If you don't find it suitable going in the coach or you don't find space, that doesn't mean we give up. That doesn't mean we give up. Many people, mashallah, took their cars and have been taking them over the last so many weeks as well. And it's doable. Alhamdulillah, we've been like that as well. And it's doable, it's possible. Uh, and, you know, at least you've got your comfort of knowing when to go, when you want to come back as well. So make this intention, inshallah, and in every other means possible. But give this priority. Next week's Saturday, 13th of March, uh, from Masjid Aisha, the coach is leaving at 8.15. And they'll be returning from London at 5.15. So get in touch with the brothers, Brother Jamshaid and Hafiz Umar or what other, other names are there on the flyers and the posters at Masjid Aisha. That's for brothers only. And there's a family's one going from the West Bromwich Yemeni Center. And you may hear of others as well. I'm not sure about any others. Does anybody know any other coaches that are going from anywhere in Birmingham? It'll be good to share the information for people who are interested because there was a lot of interest and inquiries. Um, but we need to channel these people to the right places. Anyone know of any other places organizing transport? No? So everyone's going to be there, inshallah. MashaAllah. May Allah accept everyone. I think I only heard about five people say inshallah. Let me, let me try it again. Everyone's going to be there. Inshallah. That's better. Or are you guys waiting for Imam Mahdi to come? Okay, so Sutton Coalfield also, they're organizing, but it's not finalized. Inshallah, you can finalize it when you go from here. So, we need to push this, and it's from individuals. This work now is not going to happen from, and this is the nature of it. We cannot wait. This is what we're saying. We cannot wait for a Mahdi. Even in masjids, in communities, people are waiting for the Mahdi of the community to stand up. It doesn't work like that anymore. You are the Mahdi, meaning you are the one. Mahdi means a guided person. If you've got the fikr, you've got the concern, you're going to have to stand up and people will stand up with you. That is how it's going to work. Because this work is for the ummah now. It's not for just a group of people or Palestinians or just the Arabs or people of the Middle East or people of a set. No, this is for all people. So you've got the concern, stand up inshallah, Allah will put people with you and you take it forward like that. So that's the first thing. Secondly, inshallah, we need, because we have a busy life and we have so many distractions and this is so intense and it's so critical, it's the need of the hour and we can't ignore it. It's so easy for us to turn a blind eye despite every time you turn on the TV, every time you put on the news, every time you go on your phone, you can't hide from it. But despite that, the world that we live in and the engagements that we have are such that it's so easy to begin to ignore it or to get sidetracked or to get busy in other things, or to make ourselves forget it. This is why we need something on a regular basis that keeps us in, con in, in, in connection, that keeps us connected. And this is why we have this weekly gathering, which is a must and an imperative 
for us to remain in connection. Whether the BBC shows you or not, whether they are bombing or not, we are working to end the occupation. We are working towards the freedom and the liberation of Palestine and Masjid al-Aqsa. We are working to preserve one of the most sanctified places of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on earth. And that is not time restrictive. That is not going to happen just over one demonstration or one protest or one march. This is a continuous thing. So alhamdulillah, we have this gathering week in, week out. Is based more on education and spirituality as it is a solidarity because this news does reach people all over the world and the people there are seeing and noticing that every single week you're getting together and this does boost their morale and your get together here is making a difference and it is giving them hope that there are people in Britain in UK in Birmingham and our other places, mashallah, people are coming from other places. And those of you listening from everywhere else that you can't attend in person, but you still every single week. And I recognize the efforts of all the sisters that regularly attend and are here today as well. You know, your efforts are being recognized and your presence makes a huge difference. So make the intention from now, inshallah, for next week, number one, and also bring somebody along. We can't let it stop. This, this is just the beginning we're not at the end of it. We're at the beginning. We've only just got started. For years, sadly, for years and years and years, this cause has been neglected. It's been forgotten. It hasn't been spoken about. We haven't engaged. I haven't engaged. I should feel, you know, this is something I should be asking Allah's forgiveness for. That, oh Allah, forgive my inaction. I haven't done enough for this cause. And nobody should feel that they've done enough for this cause. Nobody has. I certainly haven't. And none of us have. But what we can do is going forward, going forward from now onwards, we can make resolutions. You know, people are making New Year's resolutions, okay? Did you hear anybody make a resolution about Palestine, about Masjid al-Aqsa? These are the kind of resolutions that we should be making, not just because it's the New Year, but generally. This is the resolution that the mother of Maryam made, didn't she? When she found out that she was carrying a baby, she made a resolution. That, oh Allah, this baby I'm going to dedicate for the cause of Masjid al-Aqsa. Zakaria, even before he had a child, the resolution he made for his child. That, oh Allah, grant me a child, not just because I want a child, because I want this child to work towards the cause of Masjid al-Aqsa, Baytul Maqdis, and Palestine. So let us make this resolution, inshallah, and we make dua that Allah accepts us. There's nothing greater than working, living, and then leaving the world for a noble cause. Otherwise, what's the difference between me and David or John from the road who wakes up in the morning, goes to work, comes back, watches a bit of telly, has something to eat, you know, and then goes to sleep for the next day. What's the difference between me and him? If we don't live for a cause, what cause are you living for? Apart from eating, sleeping and drinking, going to work, having kids, you know, what are you living for? Ask yourself this question. What differentiates you and, you know, John or Jack or whoever it is? What, what's the difference? If we're waking up in the morning and we're just going through a routine, and they're waking up in the morning going through a routine, we come to the masjid on a Friday, they go to church on a Sunday. Of course, there is no comparison. A Muslim, a Muslim, the lowest Muslim, okay, we believe that iman is valuable. So don't misquote me here. But I'm trying to drive a point home, and that is, what is your purpose of living? What's your cause? Do you have a cause? And if you haven't got one, Allah's giving you one now. 
There is nothing more important than this in this moment in time. So live for this cause. And do, you know, shaitan sometimes plays with our minds and tells us that, you know, we're always trying to think, so what's the best way I can support this cause? People will come and ask you this. I get people, what's the best? Go on, you tell me what's the best. I said, this is shaitan playing tricks with you. <laughs> shaitan is playing tricks with you. He's trying to make you think you're looking for the best cause. And you know what's going to end up happening? You're not going to do anything. You're not going to do anything because you're going to always feel I'm not... The best thing for you is to do something. Whatever Allah gives you the tawfiq to do, whatever you're created to do, Allah will guide you to it. Just start doing it. That's the best thing for you. But if you're waiting for the best thing to come along, and in the interim you don't do anything, just thinking, oh, because it's not the best thing, or what if I'm doing something but it's not the best, then what's going to happen is we're not going to end up doing anything. So sometimes shaitan's, you know, he's very sly. He knows how to trick our minds. So he comes to us from this pious route thinking, let me think of the best thing to do. So I can present that. Well, it's a noble thing to think of, but think real and be practical. It doesn't have to be huge. What you do doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be the same what everybody else is doing. The thing is, do something. Do something. And the easiest thing at this moment and time that I can suggest to you that is extremely effective is turn up on a Sunday. Turn up here on a Sunday, inshallah. You will get inspiration. You will be with like-minded people. You've got a community here that everybody's here for the same reason. And inshallah, it will inspire you. It will inspire you. And I'm sure many of you have been inspired to go from here and take part in many other different things, which maybe you wouldn't have had you not been coming and attending. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq. Ji. Very good question. Maulana Shafi is saying, how do we deal with salah when we go to marches or any of these type of demonstrations or events? As a Muslim, the cornerstone and the most foundational responsibility we have to Allah is salah. Salah comes first. Therefore, whenever we plan any event, it should always be around salah. This is a, Mus a Muslim does this. You're going to go out for the day. We're going to go out for the day, whether it's shopping whether it's to a theme park or whether it's going to visit relatives. The, the planning should be, uh, this is a Muslim would plan, is you would see how many of which salah will come during the five, six, seven hours I'm going to be away. And you do your planning. So if there, for example, there's a salah and it's gonna, there's one salah that's going to be, say it's going to be Maghrib and Maghrib is going to start in say 20 minutes. So what would you do? You're about to leave and you realize Maghrib's in 20 minutes. What do you do? So, you, what, so the right thing to do at this time would be to delay your leaving and just let us hang on. By the time we put our coats on, our shoes on, we, 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 we hug and kiss people goodbye, it's going to be Maghrib time anyway, right? So why don't we just wait five, ten minutes? It'll be Maghrib time. Let's do our Maghrib and then leave. And then you've got the time. So this is important whenever we plan anything, not just a demonstration or a march. So our life should revolve around the times of Salah. So we work out what salahs there are. Everybody knows their personal situation in regards to wudu. You know how long you can keep your wudu. Now, it was very uh, heartwarming to see during the marches that happened in London that throughout the march, there were, mashallah, many jamaats taking place. Every few minutes, 
on the sides, and they had ample space as well. It's not as if they were blocking any areas. There was ample space. Uh, police were providing protection as well, and people were quite respectful as well towards the people praying. So people, it's not as if that there isn't uh, facilities to pray. People were praying wherever there was a chance to pray. So you know your wudu, your situation. So there is um, places available for wudu. There's toilets available in various places. It's not happening in... Uh, in, in a desert or something where there's no water available. So there is water available, so we shouldn't go to the option of tayammum here. However, at the same time, you know your wudu situation. So accordingly, work out your salah timings. Try and pray in a way where you can accommodate the salah. If, for example, you normally, when you're traveling, if, you're, if you combine the salah normally, then by the time you start the march, you will do your, rather than waiting till later, you would make your dhuhr and asr together. And then later in the evening, it'll be Maghrib time, you could do your Maghrib and Isha together so you don't miss your Salah whatsoever. Isha, you could pray after you get home as well. So like this, think before you uh, plan your day. And also, it's possible to pray the Salahs on their time, for those of you who are particular about praying in each Salah time. And you could pray Dhuhr towards the end and Asr towards the beginning of its time and pray them together like that if you have an issue with wudu. There, there are ways around it, but you just need to think from a salah perspective before you do anything else. Is, is that okay? Are we okay to start? So we started a series on the beautiful names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we said that this is the most important topic you can study, you can learn, is because we're learning about Allah. There's nothing more noble, nothing greater, nothing more virtuous, more sacred than learning about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we've had a few lessons, alhamdulillah. And last lesson, we introduced the first two names. Let's have a quick recap, inshallah. Quick recap, so at least I know that you guys are following and the lessons are beneficial and we're getting somewhere with it. It's not going in one ear, coming out of the other. And also for those who weren't here last week, uh, it's a chance for them to catch up as well. So, over to you guys. So which were the two names we spoke about? MashaAllah. MashaAllah. So, there's a lot of you responding. So that's, um, alhamdulillah, so far so good. But we're not there yet. Al-Hay and Al-Qayyum. The two names of Allah we spoke about, the first two we spoke about were Al-Hay and Al-Qayyum. Do you remember how many times these appear in the Quran? Al-Hay appears five times. And Al-Qayyum, three times, very good. And Al-Qayyum comes paired with Al-Hay. Al-Hay, Al-Qayyum, very good. Then we give the meanings of Al-Hay. How many meanings did I give of Al-Hay? Two meanings we gave of Al-Hay. The first one, the ever-living. And the second one, the one who grants life to everyone else. So when we said Allah is ever-living, what does that mean? Uninterrupted life. Allah's life is uninterrupted. What does that mean? Is our life interrupted? What's it interrupted by? Sleep, what else? Death, what else? 
birth as well, of course, because if birth means before that we didn't have life. So our life is interrupted by so many things. Allah's life is not interrupted. This is why Quran says, Allahu la ilaha illahu al hayyul qayyum la ta'khuduhu sinatun wala nawm. Sleep or slumber doesn't overtake him. He doesn't feel sleepy and he doesn't fall asleep ever. Allahu la ilaha illahu al hayy al qayyum la ta'khuduhu sinatun wala nawm. And Allah's life is a real life. And what did we say about us? Most of the time, how do we feel? Tired, lethargic, feeling dead, okay, walking dead, right? This is, these are the kind of things that we say. And how many times, you can count on one hand, how many times we've said what? I feel alive. How many times have we said that in our lives? Probably a few. I feel alive, right? Whereas Allah is the ever-living. Allahu la ilaha illahu al-hayy. And what was the benefit? Mentioned two benefits of this beautiful name of Allah. First of all, we said that engaging. Remember, these names are not there just as a name that we put it on the on the wall or on a frame, okay, and we hang it somewhere. This is so that we engage with it, we interact with it, we utilize it in our lives. If we utilize this name in our lives, the first benefit it will give you is it will grant you focus. What does that mean? What does it mean, focus? So, Brother Shawab's, from there I've picked up one word. He said, the imperfect life. Allah has created this life to be imperfect. Anybody who seeks perfection in this life is going to struggle. And this happens to us almost daily. We're trying to get everything perfect in this life. Whereas Allah has created this life to be imperfect. It's not a perfect life. So, understanding Allah's name, Al-Hayy, it will give us this chance to focus on the perfect life. In perfecting the perfect life, we won't try and put all our ducks in a row all the time to perfect the imperfect life because it's not doable. It's not possible. And what else did we say? What's the other benefit of this name? Reliance. Reliance, how do we say that in Arabic? Tawakkul. How, how, so why is it important? Where do we get this idea from? Why is this name linked to reliance? I mentioned the rule from the Quran. So as we're going along learning Allah's names, we need to know some rules as well. Uh, regarding these names, how to use these names, what are the etiquettes of these names. So there was a rule that we introduced regarding where do we get the idea of why, what's the link between Allah's name Al-Hay and Tawakkul? Of course, so eventually, this is what we're going to get to, that Allah is always available. And anybody else, you know, they're going to either be distanced from you, or they're going to be sleepy one day, or they're going to pass away. So you can't rely on people. But you can always rely on Allah. But where do we get this idea from? That's what I'm looking for. Go on. 
we're going to have to come back to Ahmad Bai. Ahmad Bai is mentioning one of the verses of the Quran. Allah says in the Quran, If Allah mentions one of his names in the Quran, and, and he instructs us to carry out an action, that tells you that action is the benefit of that name. Meaning calling Allah with this name will help you carry out this action. Engaging with this name of Allah will help you carry out this action. In this ayah Allah says, وَتَوَكَّلْ have tawakkul, rely on who? On the Al-Hay, the one who never dies. So meaning one of the fruits, one of the benefits of the name Al-Hay is it develops what? Tawakkul. So we said this is a very important message for anyone who is a parent, a teacher, a scholar, an activist or anybody. That if your work, if your work involves people connecting to you, then your work will not outlive you. So our responsibility is, as teachers, as ulama, as activists, as parents, is to connect individuals to who? Al-Hay. Who do we collect them to? Al-Hay. Because if we connect them to Al-Hay, what will happen? Whether we're around or we're not around, people will continue. Why? Because Al-Hay is Al-Hay. We are not Al-Hay. We are here today, tomorrow I might not be here. But we have to learn to connect people to Allah. Because Allah is ever living. Otherwise, the work will die. And we give numerous examples. Allah made the Prophet ﷺ go through a process of grief. Such severe grief that the people he relied on the most, he lost them in his lifetime. And this was to teach you and me as an ummah. And to show the Prophet ﷺ internally, he relied on Khadija. Externally, he relied on Abu Talib. And within a very short period of time, the most beloved of Allah had to face such high levels of grief of having to lose somebody so close to him. Uh, he didn't, Allah could have just made it really comfortable for him. He didn't have to go through that. Allah made him go through that. These are lessons that look, your, the closest pillar to you, Khadija was his support. Outside it was Abu Talib. Like he probably didn't see it happening without Abu Talib. But now he had to look beyond. And who does he look towards? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what happened when the Prophet ﷺ passed away? Again, Sahaba were in a state. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, what did he say? Again, he used this name of Allah. Whoever used to worship Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, know that he's passed away now. And whoever used to worship Allah, فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ حَيٌّ لَا يَمُوتُ Allah is ever living, he doesn't die. So if you were doing this, and we sometimes get carried away. You know, during the time of Umar radiallahu anhu, there's a very interesting incident that happened. When the battles would go and the armies were formed, the leader of the armies appointed by uh, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, and even the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam prophesied this in the battle of Muta, when three people were named, and then the sword of Allah will come. Who was known as the sword of Allah? Khalid bin Walid. So Khalid bin Walid previously was a non-Muslim, he caused a lot of damage to the Muslims. And then he accepted Islam. And then he became such a famous warrior that if Khalid was there, people were not worried. Oh, Khalid's with us. We're going to win. No matter what, Khalid's here. Khalid's here. Khalid. Khalid, 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 Khalid. It all became about Khalid. Umar radiallahu recognized this. So when Umar radiallahu comes into power, one of the first things he does, he demotes Khalid bin Walid from his position of leadership. And... 
Instead, he places there Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. And you get people who talk, don't you? People who gossip and spread rumors. Somebody came to Khalid and said, do you know what Umar did with you wasn't good? You, know, you, you, should, you should have been there. What Umar did you wasn't, with you wasn't good. So Khalid bin Walid said, when I was the commander-in-chief, I was fighting for the cause of Allah. And now I am a normal soldier. I'm fighting for the cause of Allah. My point of mentioning this is, the ulama mentioned Umar radiallahu anhu did not have any animosity with Khalid bin Walid. It's not that he didn't like him. But he felt and he saw that people are relying too much on Khalid. People stopped saying that this conquest happened because of Allah, Al-Hay. And they're saying this is happening because of Khalid. This is happening because of Khalid. So this was a strategic move from Umar radiallahu anhu. Let's demote him. Put him as a normal soldier. Put somebody else. And then when there is a conquest in the battle, people realize that we cannot attribute it to individuals. It comes from who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When we were young and we used to go out in Jamaat, I used to remember one quotation from a great scholar of Medina, Hazrat Mawlana Sayyid Ahmad Khan sahab rahmatullahi. He used to say, uh, this is regarding the work of Dawah and Tabligh, but it's general, you can apply it to all types of dini works. When somebody in a dini work thinks that this is happening because of me, What's happening? It's happening because of me. Allah removes that person from the work. Allah stops taking work from them. When a person starts thinking, this is all happening because of me. If I wouldn't be here, then it wouldn't be happening. Then Allah will remove that person. And when people start saying that this is happening because of him, Allah takes that person away. That person will pass away and submit. So Allah does not want attribution to one individual. So this idea that we even have of just putting all the responsibility on someone like, someone like Mahdi will come. No. Every individual is responsible. You take up this responsibility and we do it for the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is Al-Hay. And then we went on to uh, the other name which is Al-Qayyum. And what did we say about Al-Qayyum? Allah is not in need of any Maintenance. Al-Qayyum means the one who is not in need of any maintenance. And another meaning is he maintains everybody else. And we said that every single name of Allah goes back to these two names. Al-Hay and Al-Qayyum. If it's a name that shows us Allah's perfection, it goes to Al-Hay. And if it's a name that shows benevolence towards his creation, it goes to Qayyum. And this is why many scholars are of the opinion that Ya Hayyu Ya Qayyum is the Ismullah Al-A'zam, the greatest name of Allah. Meaning, if you make dua and you say to Allah, Ya Hayyu Ya Qayyum, that dua will definitely be accepted. Is that something we're taking away with us? Right? So Ya Hayyu Ya, that, that, that's if you want your dua to be accepted. If you don't want your dua to be accepted, then you don't have to say. Um, and the Prophet وسلم, at the most difficult of times, he would call to Allah with these names saying, Ya Hayyu, Ya Qayyum, bi rahmatika nastaghith. That, O Hay and O Qayyum, O the ever living, and the one who is not in need of any maintenance, and the one who maintains the whole universe. In your mercy, I seek your assistance. I seek your help. I seek your aid. So, this brings us to the end of last week's lesson. So today, inshaAllah, we're not going to go into any further names. We'll do that next week. But what we are going to do today is I'm going to share with you 
uh, a few rules and regulations regarding the names of Allah. Um, rules and regulations regarding the name of Allah. We're going to speak about five rules regarding the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now before you can drive, before you can sit even in the driver's seat and start driving, you have to do a theory test, don't you? And before you do the theory test, you have to go through that. It used to be a book and then it became a CD. What is it nowadays? It's an app. Okay, so things have moved on. So we used to have that thick book before. Then we used to see the CD. Everyone's passing the CD around from one person to the other person. Theory test. And now it's become an app. So we go through this. And then once we've gone through this process, then you can sit in the drive. Now you tell me, drivers, okay, when's the last time you opened your theory book? Do we go back to it? Do we keep banging on about it? Do we keep, you know, bringing up? No. You learn the rules and then you get, you busy yourself, you busy yourself in what you're supposed to be doing, which is the driving, right? It's like, for example, wudu for salah. Wudu is a, is a tool for salah. Adhan is a tool for salah. What if somebody decides, you know what, I'm just going to do wudu all day. Keep doing wudu. Or keep calling out the adhan. No, the purpose is salah. Those are necessities for the salah. We do that because we need it. You make wudu because we need the wudu. We call the adhan because... But the main thing is what? The maqsood is the salah. So similarly, here the maqsood is the names of Allah. These are the objective. Learning the names of Allah... Uh, implementing the names of Allah, calling Allah with these names, engaging with them on a day. This is what's the idea. Now, there are some rules. There are some rules. We learn them. They're important. But that doesn't mean some people have an attitude when it comes to learning about Allah, they learn the rules, and then that's, they just speak about the rules. They speak about the people who follow the rules, and they speak about these are innovators, they don't follow these rules. And every single talk is just about the rules about Allah's names. But then they don't speak about the names of Allah. They don't speak about the benefits. So that's where the spirituality lies. So we don't want to, so we're going to just have this very short session on the rules. And then we're going to move on, inshallah. We're going to make this into rules and rules for the sake of rules. The rules are there, why? To learn, to understand, and then we move on, inshallah. So, I'm going to go through five of them, try and learn them as we go along. Number one, the first rule regarding the names of Allah. All of Allah's names are names of majesty and perfection. All of Allah's names, you're going to come across different names of Allah in the coming weeks. All of Allah's names are names of majesty and perfection. There are no negative meanings in Allah's names. Is everyone following? So what did I say? All of Allah's names are names of majesty and perfection. There are no negative meanings in any of Allah's names. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself, he says, وَلِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَاءُ husna." Allah says, for Allah are these beautiful names, these good names. So al-husna indicates every name of Allah is a name of majesty and it's a name of perfection. There is no negativity in any of Allah's names. Allah says in the Quran, وَلِلَّهِ الْمَثَلُ الْأَعْلَى For Allah are the highest of examples. When we speak about Allah, it's all about Allah's majesty, Allah's perfection. And Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, once he was making dua, and he said in his dua, وَالشَّرُّ لَيْسَ إِلَيْكَ O Allah, there is no attribution of any kind of evil of, or negativity towards you. 
Therefore, we're talking about Allah's names. Every single name of Allah is, they are names of majesty and perfection. There is no negativity uh, or imperfection in any of Allah's names. And the biggest uh, proof of this is Allah negates imperfection from himself. When we say subhanallah, Allah negates imperfection from himself. So that is one key thing that we must remember and understand. This is why we find some of the names, we, scholars have differed, is, is it a name? For example, Adar, or Al-Mudil, or Al-Mudil. Oh, some of these names, and this is why they pair it with Al-Nafi Ad-Dar and Al-Hadi Al-Mudil. Like this, they pair them. And some scholars say that no, that these don't appear in the Quran as a name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are rules to understand what is a name and what is an attribute and what is a description. There's a difference here. What is a name? What's an attribute? What's a description? So number one, all of Allah's names are names of Majesty and perfection. There is no negative meaning in any of Allah's names. Number one. Number two. The second rule is, all of Allah's names come from the sacred text. All of Allah's names, we're talking about names. All of Allah's names come from the sacred text. What is the sacred text? Quran and the authentic sunnah. Unlike the descriptions. There are words we use to describe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They don't have to necessarily come from the Quran and the Sunnah in that form. But Allah's names must come from the Quran and the Sunnah. Let's understand this. If you make three circles, a middle circle, a, 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 a center circle, another one around it, and a larger one. In the middle, in the center, we can see that this is, these are the names of Allah. And the wording for this is the most restrictive. Meaning, this only comes from the Quran and the Sunnah. Restrictive in its wording. This must come from where? Quran and Sunnah. Then in the middle circle, the next circle, we call this the attributes of Allah. Attributes. Every name of Allah proves an attribute. Every name of Allah proves an attribute. But not every attribute proves a name. Is everyone following? Every name of Allah proves an attribute. But not every attribute proves a name. So, is Rahman one of Allah's names? Yes. Where do we find it? Quran. Is Rahim one of Allah's names? Yes. So this is going to be in the middle. Is Rahim one of Allah's names? Ar-Rahim. No. But is he an attribute? The one who shows mercy? Yes. So every name of Allah will prove an attribute. But not every attribute proves a name. For example, one of Allah's attributes, we know that Allah says in the Quran about him becoming anger. So one attribute of Allah we can say is Allah does become angry. So from there, becoming angry is ghadab. Are we going to say now one of Allah's name is ghadban, like he's Rahman? No. So every name, like Rahman and Rahim, will prove an attribute, like Allah is Rahim. But attributes don't prove names. Are we following? I know it's early in the morning. To prove a name, that wording has to appear in the Quran or the Sunnah, as a name. Is everyone following? So 
The most restrictive is the inner circle, which are names. These must come from the Quran and the Sunnah, like Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Then we have the next circle, which is attributes. Attributes are proven from the names. They don't have to appear in the Quran and Sunnah. For example, one of Allah's attributes is Ar-Rahim, the one who shows mercy. We derive it from Rahman and Rahim. Although, and we make a distinction. That's not his name, that's his attribute. Difference there. It's not his name, it's his attribute. And then the third circle. Uh, I, again, I'll give you another example. Um, yeah, the, the, third, the third circle. So in, in the middle we have names, then we have attributes. And the third level will be descriptions. Words we use to describe Allah. They might not appear in the Quran. If somebody refers to Allah as the Sani'ah, if I say Allah is the engineer of the universe, have I said anything wrong? No. Would I say engineer is one of Allah's names? Would I say it's one of his attributes? No. But can I say it's a description? Yes. Do you understand where we're going with this? So this is the third level, which is more broad. I can say Allah is the Sani' of the universe. He is the engineer of the universe. I'm describing Allah, but this is not one of his names. And it's not one of his attributes as well. It's a description that I'm using. So this is one of the rules. All of Allah's names come from the sacred texts, unlike the descriptions. Okay? That's rule number two. Rule number three. Allah's names are unknown in number. Allah's names are unknown in number. We went into this into detail at the beginning. So I'm not going to expand on this. We just use that one hadith where the Prophet ﷺ made dua to Allah. Oh Allah, I'm asking you from, uh, through all of your names, through all of your names that you have revealed in a book, or you taught a prophet, or you've kept in your the knowledge of unseen, which tells us there are so many names of Allah, and we don't know the exact number. But we do know there are more attributes than names. There are more attributes than names. Because remember, to prove a name, it has to be from the Quran or Sunnah. So it's more restrictive. Whereas attributes, there are more attributes. Number four. A very important one. Again, we learn it as a rule and then we move on. In regards to Allah's names, we affirm without likeness and without denial. We affirm Allah's qualities, Allah's attributes without likeness and also without denial. What does that mean? So, Likeness, we call in Arabic, there are two words here. One is takif, without takif. Takif comes from the word like kaifa. Some of you, you know the word kaifa haluk. What does it mean, kaifa haluk? How are you? So, when we describe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for example, the hadith might say Allah's face, Allah's eyes, Allah's hearing, Allah's hand. So, we don't do takif, we don't say how. How is it? No, we believe it without, without likeness. We don't try to understand, oh, how will it be? What will it look like? How is it? No, 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 no. We believe it. Allah said it, we believe it. So we believe it without likeness and also without denial. We don't say, oh, no, 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 we can't take this meaning. So then we're going to change it or believe it. No, no, no. Believe it as it is. This was the most safest route of the Salaf in regards to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, there were other opinions and other scholars that derived different. No, this means this or this. the safest and the most easiest way to deal with it is leave it as it is. Allah has said it, we believe in it. Full stop. That's the easiest and the safest route. 
And also, we believe in Allah without tamthil. Tamthil means to give a likeness. Like in Arabic, if I was to say the word uh, mumathil, what, what would you call it? Who's mumathil today? Mumathil. Is, if you copy somebody, if you copy somebody, you, you are giving a likeness. So, also we, we say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we do not give his qualities to anybody else. In English, we call that technical term, deification. Allah is the deity. But to make somebody else saying that somebody else sees the way Allah sees, somebody else hears the way Allah hears, this is like giving Allah godly qualities to somebody else. This is so we don't believe in this. We don't believe that somebody else has the qualities that Allah has. This is giving the, uh, the idea of being a deity to somebody else. So these names that we're learning of Allah, these are exclusive to Allah in that sense. Nobody else possesses these. And also we are free from anthropomorphism, where we give Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, body parts like other human beings have. No, when we speak about Allah's hand or Allah's seeing or Allah's hearing, this is It's not like human beings. Allah's beyond His creation. So we are free from this, from Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'ah. When we learn the names of Allah, this is a very important rule that we don't go into try and giving Him a likening to His creation. Beautiful explanation by Allah Himself in the Quran. Allah says, Laysa kamithlihi shayt. There is nothing like him. And then what did he say after this? This is profound. Who can tell me what comes after this in the Quran? Laysa kamithlihi shay wa huwa sami'ul alim. Wa huwa sami'ul alim. Is it sami'ul alim or sami'ul basir? Sami'ul basir. Wa huwa sami'ul basir. There is nothing like him. And then Allah used the two most common qualities found in His creation. Seeing and listening. Wow. Look what Allah is doing here. He's mentioning the two qualities that are most common in the creation of Allah. Allah is saying, nothing and no one is like Him. And He is the all-hearing and all-seeing. Meaning, the most common quality that you can see in people is hearing and uh, seeing and hearing. Seeing and listening. But Allah is saying before that, that even in these qualities, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ don't, don't think because you can see other people seeing and hearing. No, Allah is not like that. That's not how Allah sees. That's not how Allah hears. How does it? Don't go there. That's not your job. Your job is not to understand how. That's up to Him. You're never going to get it. You will not understand it. Your brain is too small to comprehend how Allah does these things. That's not your job. Don't go down that route. That's what we're saying over here. So this is an important rule for us to understand also. And there is a hadith, for example, which is um, quite commonly quoted, that in the third portion of the night, at the time of tahajjud, there's a hadith that says, Allah descends to the first heaven. Allah descends to the first heaven. Now again, what do we do with narrations like this? Okay, if you were to go and ask your grandma, I'll give you an example. If you were to go and ask your grandma the meaning of this hadith, that there's a hadith and it says in there that Allah descends to the first heaven in the last portion of the night, what, what will your grandma tell you? 
to how do you deal with this hadith? What will your grandma say? Tell me. Yeah, but what, 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 will she, what will she tell you to do? She'll tell you, wake up and pray tahajjud. That, that is where our focus is supposed to be. Your grandma will tell you, wake up and pray tahajjud. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Not trying to figure out what this means. That's the idea of it. We sometimes take the wrong end of the stick. We're trying to, oh, what does that mean? Allah, no, no, no. That's not for you. Allah says that. That's not for you to delve into. The idea is, that is a time where you should be waking up and praying your tahajjud. That's what it means. That's your job to take from here. And the last one, number five, the last rule for today is, the linguistic meanings in the names of Allah and the descriptions of Allah, they are understood. The linguistic meanings, when you hear a word, we understand that this is, they are understood, but not the manner of how in their existence. And I'm going to give you an example of this from Imam Malik. Imam Malik rahmatullahi was a very great Imam. When Imam Malik would sit and discuss hadith, it would seem as if it's a king sitting on his throne. Nobody moved in his gathering. There was a lot of awe, a lot of respect. Imam Malik had 365 pairs of clothes in one year. Each day he would wear a new robe. The amount of respect he gave to the hadith. He would dress in a very special garment. Every single day, a new garment. Every day. And he demanded a lot of respect. Nobody, even people that were there in his gathering, would be so careful in turning the pages. No one would dare ask him a question whilst he's walking on the road. No. Deen, Islam, knowledge, you have to give it respect. There's a time and place for it. One day, Imam Malik's gathering. Now, such an Imam who is delivering the knowledge of hadith in this awe-inspiring gathering, and whilst he's talking, somebody blurted something out. Imam Malik, I have a question. And everyone's attention is on him. And he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ar-Rahman ala al-Arsh istawa. Ar-Rahman, Allah is Rahman, who raised above his throne. Istawa, who made istawa on his throne. Fakayfa istawa. Tell me, how is this? Describe this. Imam, the people sitting there say, we saw the complexion of Imam Malik changing. We could see the anger building up in him. And his veins were bursting. And Imam Malik, rahmatullah he turned to this individual. And why I'm mentioning this is, this became a principle for you and me afterwards. He turned to this individual. And he said, Al-Istiwa'u Ma'alum. Istiwa, we know about it. Number one, Al-Istiwa'u Ma'alum. We know about Istiwa because the Quran says, Allah made Istiwa on his arsh. We know about Istiwa. Wal-Kaifiyyatu Majhul. The manner in which he does it, we don't know. We know about the linguistic word. We know Allah made istiwa on his arsh. We know. How he did it, that's unknown. Well, imanu bihi wajib. To believe in it is an obligation. And to ask about it like you just have, this is an innovation. Therefore, Imam Malik says, you are an innovator, get out of my gathering. And they pick him up and drag the man away. So don't ask these kind of questions here. So we know, al-istiwa'u ma'alum, wal-kaifiyyatu majhul, wal-imanu bihi wajib, was-su'alu anhu bid'a. So when it comes to these issues, we know, because the Quran mentions, how we do, we're never going to know. Have you ever been to a, 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 a gold shop, a jeweler shop? Yeah, you've been? 
Or maybe, or maybe you didn't go, you got drugged inside, okay? <laughs> you got drugged inside, you didn't go willingly, or you stood outside, right? Have you seen, like, when, 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 when your missus, you know, decides to buy these things, okay, these tiny little small things, right? Then it comes, what, what, did, what does the guy do behind the counter? What's the first thing to do? They need to weigh it. Everything has to be weighed. How big is the scale? Is it a big scale or a small one? A tiny scale, right? With big numbers, right? You put a tiny little ring on there, and it gives you a big price. Have you seen the size of the scale? Right? It's a tiny scale. You can't weigh like a, 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 a sack of rice on there or a bag of flour on there. This is for small, tiny things. So in similarly, our brain is, is tiny. When it comes to comprehend, we can't comprehend Allah. Allah is Allah. Allah is beyond His creation. We are, we are nothing. We can't try and go and delve into the detail. So we've just kept this one session to speak about these things. From next session onwards, inshallah, we're going to go back to the names. But it was important for us to learn these rules, go over them, so that we can understand what are our regulations, how we are regulated when it comes to these names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's it, inshallah. We keep them in mind and then we move on. The purpose is for us to engage with the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So most importantly, last week, the names that we learned, let's try and utilize them throughout the week. When we make dua, call Allah through Ya Hayya Qayyum. Try and develop focus in our life and also tawakkul and reliance. That it, we don't, people, people come, people go. Things come, things go. Allah is always there. Allah will always be there for you. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the understanding. It 29 today lesson bismillah rahman rahim what do you know about masjid al-aqsa lesson 29 we finished the module on history we started from the time of prophet adam alayhi salam and we've gone throughout the ages and last week we concluded on the current israeli occupation um, those of you who've missed out on that you could go back uh, onto the playlist and follow the history um, from the time of Adam alayhi salam. We've done it on a weekly basis and we've concluded the history of Jerusalem uh, last week, alhamdulillah. We're going to go into a new module now and that is understanding Jerusalem in Judaism and Christianity. So that is what we're going to be going into for the next few weeks, inshallah. So Jerusalem in Judaism and Christianity, we understand the significance as Muslims. We've already spoken about that. But why and how is it significant to Jewish people? And why and how is it significant to Christians to understand the complete dynamics of things? This is an important stage in our learning. Jerusalem stands out as a unique city revered by followers of Judaism, Christianity and Islam. It's the only city in the world that is linked to all three faiths all of which worship one God, they trace their origins to Ibrahim salam, and they believe in the holy scriptures. So it's a very unique city because for us, which other cities do we have? We've got Mecca and Medina, but that's only for Muslims, only for Muslims. Whereas Jerusalem is very different. Jerusalem is open to Muslims, it's open to Jewish people, it's open to Christians as well. Mecca and Medina aren't. And 
Throughout history, peace and freedom in Jerusalem have only been experienced for all three religions under Islamic rule. So this is something you will know from history, that the only time these three religions have experienced peace is when Muslims were ruling the city of Jerusalem. Otherwise, there's been no peace in that region. So what's the definition of Judaism? What is Judaism? Judaism is a religion established by Allah and was sent with Musa alayhi salam through the Torah. And the Torah came to the Hebrews of the time who are the descendants of Ibrahim alayhi salam, also known as the tribes of the Bani Israel, the children of Israel. The term Yahud, where does the word Yahud come from? Yahud now in English means Jewish. The actual word the Quran uses Yahud has various origins. Different people have said it comes from here, it comes from there. One of the most popular ones, it comes from the child of Yaqub had a son called Yahuda. In English we say Judah. Yahuda. So the term Yahud is derived from there. That's where, and then it just got generalized. It was only one of the sons of Yaqub and then it became generalized and used for all of the people who follow that particular faith and thus everybody who follows that faith is called Yahud. Muslims regard Jews as the people of the book but believe that their religion has deviated from the true teachings of Musa alayhi salam. As of 2006, there were approximately 13 million people, 13 million people worldwide adhering to Judaism. 42% of them living in the state of occupation. We know what Dawlatul Ihtilal is, don't we? Yes? The state of occupation. We know what it is. Right? It's a better way of saying Israel. So it's called the state of occupation. In Arabic, we call it Dawlatul Ihtilal. It's the state of occupation. So there we have 42% of them are living there. This was back in 2006. Now there's probably many more. Who is a Jew? and understanding Judaism and nationalism. A Jew is typically defined as someone born to a Jewish mother. For those with non-Jewish mothers, so there is a common misunderstanding that you can't become Jewish. So that's not true. So originally, yes, if your mother is a Jewish person, then you're Jewish. But you can convert to Judaism. For those with non-Jewish mothers, conversion to Judaism requires approval from rabbinic authorities under special conditions. Regardless of their beliefs, individuals born to Jewish mothers remain Jews, a concept absent in Christianity or Islam. So if you're born as a Jew, even if you become an atheist, you're still a Jew. Because Judaism is not just a religion. It's based on nationalism as well. So even before the coming of Musa salam, these people considered themselves to be the Yahud because they go all the way back to the children of Yaqub who came before Musa salam. So more, it's not just a religion, it's a nationalistic kind of belief as well. In Christianity and Islam, the denial of Allah's existence, if somebody says, I don't believe in Allah, negates religious affiliation. I've got nothing to do with Islam or Christianity. Irrespective of one's parental faith, what would happen? you'd be considered out of Christianity, out of Islam. But in Judaism, that doesn't happen. Even if you deny, you still remain as a Jew. 
The intertwining of religion and nationality in Judaism stems from Jews viewing themselves as both a people and a nationality, tracing back to the tribes of Yaqub salam, the son of Ishaq salam. This lineage originated from Ibrahim salam, intentionally excludes the descendants of Ismail salam. Now, Ibrahim salam, they say we are the children of Ibrahim salam. Now, Ibrahim salam first had Ismail, and then he had Ishaq salam. So if we say that we are the children of Ibrahim salam, Ibrahim salam had Ismail also, and also Ishaq. So this lineage, instead to ensure that Ismail salam's lineage is excluded, this is one of the reasons why the ancestral lineage goes to the mother. And they say that we are from Sarah. So if your mother is Jewish, then you are Jewish, going to Sarah. Because if you went to the father, what would happen? Then that would go back to Ibrahim salam. Ibrahim salam also had Ismail before he had Ishaq salam. So by going to the mother, it excludes anybody from the side of Ismail salam. The Bani Ismail are excluded and only the Bani Ishaq and the Bani Israel are included in this lineage. Because again, it all goes back to a covenant made to Ibrahim alayhi salam. Allah made a covenant and a promise to Ibrahim alayhi salam regarding him and his children. Now, if we go back to Ibrahim alayhi salam, it's going to go first to Ismail and his children, which includes us as Muslims. But to exclude that, chosen to go to Ishaq. And then from Ishaq, uh, we find going to Ibrahim going to Sarah. So like this, it excludes the Bani Ismail from the covenant. The majority of modern Jews in the occupying state are not direct descendants of ancient Hebrew Israelites from Ibrahim salam. So nowadays, majority of the Jewish people you find in the state of occupation are not from the Bani Israel, as they might even claim. They're not from the Bani Israel. Rather, they are a diverse mix of people influenced by Judaism over the ages. And what drove them there were colonial powers. Colonial powers have driven them to go and reside there, but they're not originally from them. You ask them, they'll say we're from Europe or America or other places. They're not originally from there, uh, linking back to the Bani Israel. Let's understand a little bit more about Jewish belief. Monotheism in Judaism. So originally, Judaism, Jews believe in a single incorporeal God and uh, cannot be seen, cannot be perceived by human beings, and which is... Uh, and life depends on him. Just like we believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is the original belief of the Yahud. Yet, because Jewish belief has evolved over the ages, it has led to diverse and sometimes contrary conceptions regarding God. Some diverging from monotheism and transcendence. In their text now, because it's been changed, God is described as having human-like qualities, such as eating, Drinking, fatigue, anger, bloodthirstiness, thirstiness, whims, and even remorse as well. I'm going to read to you from the Exodus, uh, a little passage. Then the Lord regretted the evil that he said he would do to his people. Exodus. So, giving you an idea that over the, originally they believed regarding Allah how we do. But because there has been many changes, this is just one example that the idea of Allah no longer remains as a monotheistic God, it has changed and evolved. In Judaism, God is perceived as exclusive to the children of Israel. 
Meaning they believe their God is their God. Not everybody. We believe Allah is Allah for everybody. He said, no, no, no. The Allah we believe in is only our Allah, only our God, not a deity for all humanity. The Torah states, the today's Torah states, and you'll see this in Deuteronomy 23.3, the passage is, Neither Ammonite nor Moab shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. None of them shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord forever, even to the 10th generation. So this shows that they believe that their God is exclusive for them and not for all of humanity. Understanding Jerusalem and the divine promise. Jewish texts include a promise by God to Ibrahim and his descendants regarding the Holy Land, which is Jerusalem, which encompasses Jerusalem, considered their eternal capital. So they say Moses was shown this land but was prohibited from entering it. These texts display contradictions. If Ibrahim was promised and given a covenant, and then they are saying that it's only for Ishaq and the children of Sarah, there's a contradiction there. Initially, the promise is extended to all of Ibrahim's descendants in their books, but later it becomes limited to Sarah's offspring, thus excluding the lineage of who? Ismail. So there's a contradiction there in their books that this covenant was given to Ibrahim. The authors of the Torah, I say authors because the Torah is written by hand, it originally came from Allah, but then it got destroyed, it got taken away. And then the Bani Israel were taken as captives by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and they were living in Iraq, in Babylon. Whilst they were there in captivity, the rabbis decided to rewrite the Torah. So they wrote it again. So the authors of the Torah belonging to the tribes of Yaqub might have tailored these promises to their lineage during their Babylonian captivity. So it could so be that when they were there to try and you know, politically get back to that land, Maybe they, that's what they wrote later on. Understanding the Jews as God's chosen people. Many Jews hold the belief that they are God's chosen people, a notion supported by passages in the Torah. This belief implies exclusivity and separation from other groups. Jewish laws such as the prohibition of usury amongst Jews, uh, but its allowance from non-Jews reinforces a sense of superiority. So this is one, of, one such rule that you cannot deal with interest between a Jew and a Jew. But a non-Jew, you can deal with them. So again, this is it's kind of a, it's a racist rule, which other people would deem as racist. They probably don't. But other people would say, this is a very nationalistic, a racist kind of ideology that you consider yourself superior, thus amongst yourselves, you don't deal with it, but with others, you allow it. And finally, understanding the doctrine of the Savior, the Messiah. The Jewish belief in a savior, a king from the lineage of Daud emerged from historical crisis and the Babylonian captivity. Again, this is something that you don't find originally in their text. When they were in that captivity, do you know how now when we're in this state that we're in, everyone's calling for a Mahdi, right? Where's the Mahdi? Where's the Mahdi? So you can imagine the Bani Israel being in a state of turmoil when they were just annihilated, Jerusalem taken away, and they are now in Iraq. So... When they were in Babylonian captivity, this Messiah is prophesied to lead the Jewish people to salvation, gathering the exiles and re-establishing Jerusalem as the capital in a golden age that will last a thousand years. The concept of the Messiah has significantly influenced Jewish community life, particularly the notion of awaiting salvation. However, with the advent of Zionism in the mid-19th century, 
this perspective underwent a transformation. Zionism shifted the focus from passively waiting for a divine savior to actively working towards the return of the promised land. So originally, they had this idea, yes, the awaited Messiah, he will come, he will come. Zionism has just pressed fast forward. And they want to, rather than wait for it, bring it forward. And this is the change that, driven, that was driven by nationalists and colonial ideas prevalent in Europe at the time. Zionism reinterpreted the idea of the savior from being a divinely sent knight destined to deliver the Jewish people and grant them the promised land to a concept symbolizing the era of salvation. So it's moved from this idea of the awaited Messiah to a, a nationalistic movement. The shift is the thought that this, this led the rabbinic endorsements supporting the settlement in Palestine of Jewish people, marking a departure from their original belief. So this wasn't their original belief. If you go to Orthodox Jews, they will oppose this idea of uh, occupation. They will not believe that Israel should be created in the first place and Palestine should have been overtaken. No, they will say this is not right. We don't support this. We don't support this uh, Zionist movement. They will uh, disagree with it. The movement emphasized a proactive role in fulfilling the prophecies of return and redemption. This evolution in Jewish thought not only reshaped their religious beliefs, but also had profound political and social implications. It played a crucial role in the complex dynamics of the Middle East, particularly in relation to Jerusalem and the Holy Land, which hold deep historical and spiritual significance in Jewish tradition. The interplay between religious convictions and political actions continue to shape the region's landscape, reflecting the enduring influence of these beliefs and the pivotal role of Jerusalem in the collective Jewish consciousness. So as we can see, this is a more recent notion uh, under the title of Zionism. Colonial powers got together and tried to make this happen. Yes, they do have a belief that the awaited Messiah is going to come, but it was like, it'll happen when it happens. But this is like a forcing the hand of God, basically. That make it happen now. We want it to happen right now, this moment, this second. And this is what the attempts are currently. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the correct understanding. Wa akhiru da'wana. And alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. We'll give a few minutes, inshallah, for the recitation of Quran. Then we will conclude with dhikr and dua. Jazakumullahu khaira. Recite Duru Sharif Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallim. La ilaha illa Allah, 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 la ilaha illa Allah 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 la ilaha 
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد يا حي يا قيوم 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 برحمتك نستغيث اصلح لنا شاننا كله ولا تكلنا الى انفسنا طرفه عين جزا الله عنا سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم هو اهله ربنا ظلمنا انفسنا وان لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكونن من الخاسرين او kind and loving allah او most merciful allah او most compassionate allah او the forgiving allah والله you love to forgive sins of allah you love to pardon sins of allah forgive all our shortcomings of allah forgive us all our sins of allah delete our history of allah wipe away all our sins of allah cleanse us of allah cleanse us from our sins of allah purify us of allah remove the darkness from our hearts of allah purify our souls of allah illuminate our hearts with your nur of allah grant us your special maghfirah of allah shower us with your mercy of allah and through your mercy help us to abstain from your disobedience of allah through your mercy grant us the tawfiq and the ability to carry out acts of obedience of allah make us those that please you o allah make us from amongst those that obey you o allah make us from amongst those who follow your commands of allah make us from amongst the people of the sunnah of allah help us to become one of those who recite the quran on a daily basis o allah fill our hearts with shukr o allah grant us the ability to carry out sabr at the time of difficulty o allah o allah increase us in our iman and our yaqeen o allah increase us in our love and mahabba for you o allah grant us the true love of rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam o allah make us akhirah focused o allah o allah take away the love of dunya and materialism from our hearts of allah and grant us the love of the akhirah o allah make us akhirah focused o allah help us to focus and worry more about the hereafter o allah create this worry within our hearts o allah teach us o allah we don't know o allah help us o allah guide us along the way o allah do not leave us on our own o allah guide us along siratul mustaqim o allah we are in need of your guidance o allah grant us your guidance o allah protect us o allah protect us o allah protect the ummah o allah have mercy on the ummah o allah shower your mercy on the ummah o allah in particular the people of gaza and palestine o allah o allah you take them under your control o allah protect them from all sides o allah grant them strength o allah grant them istiqama o allah shower them with your sabr o allah pour sabr over them o allah make them firm in their resistance and on their feet o allah help them to continue resisting o allah for their land and for their sanctified sites o allah o allah protect their lives o allah protect their livelihood o allah protect whatever remains o allah help them to rebuild their lives o allah return the days of glory to them o allah grant them victory o allah grant them ease and protection o allah put an end to the oppression o allah put an end to the occupation o allah put an end to the atrocities o allah put an end to the massacre o allah put an end to the genocide o allah grant peace and uh, and harmony in those were in those areas and throughout the world o allah make us from amongst those who establish justice on this earth o allah 
make us from amongst those who spread peace on the earth, O oh Allah. Make us from amongst those who establish your deen on the earth, O oh Allah. Grant us the ability to work for the cause of your deen, O oh Allah. Grant us the ability to work for the cause of Palestine, O oh Allah. Grant us the ability to work for the cause of the liberation of Masjid al-Aqsa, O oh Allah. Protect Masjid al-Aqsa, O oh Allah. Grant it liberation, O oh Allah. O oh Allah, allow, allow Muslims globally to visit and pray in Masjid al-Aqsa, O oh Allah. Protect it from being desecrated, O oh Allah. Protect it from being disrespected, O oh Allah. Protect it from the incursions, O oh Allah. And allow Muslims from all over the world to visit Masjid al-Aqsa in a state that is liberated, O oh Allah. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked of you many good things. We ask of you the same. He sought your protection from many evils. We seek your protection from the same. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun. Wa salamun ala al-mursaleen. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alayhi.